We return to the book of Esther, as you heard our reading. Uh, we're in chapter 3. God's people are, are facing a very difficult situation in Esther. Finally, in this chapter, a villain is introduced, Haman, and a plot against the Jews is devised and starting to be implemented. Things look pretty hopeless, as they often do for the church, and yet this passage sets the stage for a dramatic triumph orchestrated behind the scenes by God and triggered by a courageous choice of Queen Esther, which we'll be talking about next week. So our outline is very simple this morning, just two points. Let's first look at the conflict, and then second, let's look at the victory. Our conflict and our victory. I will not leave you discouraged this morning, okay? Let's look at the conflict. And the first big question we have to ask, all the commentaries ask that, all study Bibles ask that question, why is Mordecai refusing to bow down and show respect to Haman? This is a legitimate question. Haman is promoted. He is a very important person in, in the royal court. He is in the office. The gate is kind of like an office. That's where a lot of royal bureaucrats are gathering their signing stuff and negotiating. And Mordecai is one of those officials. And when Haman, Haman comes in, everybody bows to him. That's normal. That's just accepted behavior uh, at that time. And there's no uh, really no record of the Jews being offended by that or refusing to do that for religious reasons. So I don't think it's because of worship or idolatry. I don't think that's why. Um, maybe because Mordecai is, maybe he's bitter that he didn't get promoted, and Haman did. Remember, Mordecai saved the king's life in the previous passage, and you would expect that he would get promoted, but providentially, his promotion happens much, much later. Maybe he's resentful and bitter. But then again, I think if he's really so focused on his career, and that's so important to him, that this kind of behavior would, would ruin your career. So it doesn't seem like a good choice for him here. So what, what is the problem here? Why is he not bowing down to Haman and just refuses to do that? Other people talk to him and say, why don't you do that? And he just refuses to do that. I think the answer is in our text. If you go to chapter 2, verse 5, and this is the first time Mordecai is introduced to us. And it's important to know how the author of Esther introduces this character, this person. 2 verse 5, now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. And then we have his genealogy, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. He's a Jew from the tribe and clan of King Saul. Saul was a Benjaminite, and Saul was from the family of Kish. Now, this is important. The author of Esther could have introduced Mordecai to us in any sort of way, and he chooses to tell us he's a Jew, he's a Benjaminite, and he comes from the clan and family of King Saul. Okay? Keep that in mind. Now, we go to how Haman is introduced to us, and that's verse 1 in chapter 3 that we just read. King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, I'm not going to even attempt to read whose son he was, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. 
What's important here is that Haman is introduced as an Agagite. He is a descendant of Agag, who's a king. So you have two people here. Please see how the author of Esther brings it together and tells us what is happening in chapter 3. You have a Benjaminite who's a descendant of King Saul, and you have an Amalekite who's a descendant of King Agag. This is very important. And they converge. And the Jew refuses to bow down to the Amalekite. Now, let me give you some history. If I, when I say Amalekite, it doesn't mean anything to you. The Amalekites were the first people in the world to attack and try to destroy the newly formed covenant nation of Israel. When Israel leaves Egypt, remember, God takes them out, takes them to the desert, and the first ethnic group that attacks them and tries to annihilate them is the Amalekites. And this is so important to God that God vows that he will remove the memory of Amalek, of the Amalekites, from under heaven. God said, I will blot them out. I mean, this is very strong language. And this is, if you want to look it up, Exodus 17. Israel is commanded after that first initial battle, and that's the battle, you remember, when Moses goes on, on the hill and, and when he raises his arms, right, they win and then he gets tired and so other people have to hold up his arms. That's the battle. That's the first big battle that Israel is involved in. It's with the Amalekites. They win the battle and God says, I will blot them out. I'll blot out their memory. And he tells Israel, he says, and this is Deuteronomy 25, verse 17, he tells them, once you settle in the land, remember what the Amalekites did to you. And they were particularly cruel to Israel. They were coming from behind and getting all the people who were sick and tired. And, and so there was a real conflict, and God was very angry with the Amalekites. And he told Israel, when you settle into the land, remember what they did to you. And so when you have a chance, when you have rest from your enemies, you go and you destroy the Amalekites. Now fast forward, now King Saul, the first king of Israel, and now we're in 1 Samuel 15. All these references are in my notes. If you want to just download it from the website, you can just, you can listen. And so we're getting to King Saul, who is now commanded by Samuel the prophet on behalf of God, that now is the time to destroy the Amalekites. Amalekites are, are ruled by King Agag. And so Saul engages in battle. He wins the battle. But guess what he doesn't do? He doesn't kill the king. He spares the king. And he also gets a lot of plunder for himself and for his people. This was directly against what the Lord told them to do. Because the Lord does not want this to be a battle for profit. He wants this to be holy war. This is, a, this is an execution of God's judgment on a particular people group. And I know that I'm talking about some very difficult, disturbing things, okay? So we have to come to grips with this. But this is the history of what's happening now in chapter 3. So King Agag uh, first, of, first survives. Saul doesn't kill him. There's some royal solidarity there until Samuel comes. Samuel, is the prophet, is very angry, puts Agag to death, and Saul loses the kingdom over this sin. The reason Saul was not a king anymore and David had to step in later, the reason why Saul's descendants, like Mordecai, are not on the throne is because Saul decided to spare King 
Agag of the Amalekites. This is all in the background. And by the way, the author of Esther does not let us forget it. He introduces Mordecai. He's, this is a Jew, a Benjaminite from the family of Kish. And by the way, here's Haman, a descendant of Agag. And they clash. And as secular as Mordecai may have been, he knows the history. And he just refuses to bow down to an Amalekite. Because in his mind, the voice of Samuel rings. Samuel that told Saul that he is losing the kingdom because of his disobedience. So you have the mortal enemies of Israel. And now Haman, a representative of the people group, maybe one of the very few that's left now, wants to assert his authority over Mordecai the Jew. I think this is what's happening in this text. To me, that explains this. He just digs his heels in, and he says, I will not bow down to Haman. He just refuses. Whatever the cost, he refuses to do that. It's Mordecai's identity. It's his identity as a Jew. It's his identity as a descendant of Saul that prevents him from going through the normal royal protocol and bowing down and showing respect to his superior. Because he is engaged, I think consciously, Mordecai is engaged in a historic, sacred, God-sanctioned conflict. Now, how does that apply to us? If you're thinking about an ethnic group that you would like to, to hate, this is not how it applies to us. But we too, we Christians too, are engaged in a historic, God-sanctioned, sacred conflict. And our identity as Christians puts us right in the midst of it and prevents us from bowing down to our enemy. Let me reveal who our enemy or what our enemy is. James 4, verse 4, familiar verse to some of you. James 4, verse 4. Do you not know, James says to the Christian, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is pretty clear. Christians are engaged in this conflict with the world. In fact, I think the whole book of Esther is essentially about that. How do you live as a Christian faithfully in the world, in a culture that's hostile to you, in a world that does not even acknowledge God's existence? How do you live out your identity as a Christian in that environment? And this is what Mordecai is doing. We're involved in this conflict with the world. We see in the book of Esther, Esther is caught up in the world. She's following the world's way, as we have seen in the first sermon. You have Haman, who's just a representative of the world and stands in opposition to God and his people. You have the king, King Ahasuerus, is showing off his wealth and glory, hungry for power. This, this is what the world considers to be success. Now look with me at 1 John 2 verse 15 through 17. I'm making a case for our enemy being the world. This is, again, addressed to us Christians who live in the world and yet must resist it. 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The way John sees the Christian life, he says, you're either with the world or you're with God. If you're friends with the world, you're God's enemy. If you oppose the world, you're on God's side. You do His will. This is, this is as black and white as it gets in Scripture. This is as black and white as it is for Mordecai. I'm either bowing down to Haman and compromising everything I stand for, and now I'm co-opted into his, his work and his camp, or I'm going to stand strong and I'm going to resist bowing down to him because I want to maintain my identity. I want to be faithful to who I am according to God. Now, let's define what the world is according to this passage in 1 John. And I want to be very careful here, and, and if it sounds familiar to you, I every once in a while I circle back to this in, in preaching because this is one of the most important things for us to understand because we need to define the world in order to understand how to relate to it. And Scripture does it for us. According to the Bible, the world is a set of values. It's a worldview. It's a way of life that's antithetical to God. It's against God. It's opposed to God. From the fall of Adam and Eve, we have been building a society. We've built in a culture, a life that is set against God. Sin working its way into all sorts of institutions and endeavors of life. And so here, the world's values are very clear. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life. John summarizes for us what the world is, the essence of the world. And he's saying, don't love the world, and don't love these things, and don't follow these things, these principles, these values of the world. And if you do so, you are rejecting God because the world, by these values, is rejecting God and is building a life, building an existence outside of God's rule. So let's work through this really quickly. The desires of the flesh. The world says, says our flesh rules our spirit. The world's understanding of how we're put together is that our physical rules are spiritual. This is why our culture is driven by sensual indulgence. That's an expression of the world. Because the world says, if it feels good to you, right, it must be right. The physical rules the spiritual. That's the desires of the flesh. Now, the desires of the eyes, that has to do with how we assess value. The world says perception is reality. Appearance is more important than substance. That's why we live in a visual culture. That's an expression of the world. The goal is to impress and to keep up appearances. And then there's the pride of life. Pride of life is about self-exaltation, self-elevation, self-promotion. It's often expressed in accumulation of possessions which serve as symbols of status. The kind of car you drive, the kind of house you have, the kind of salary you make, all of that sets you apart from other people who are not as successful as you are or who are more successful as you are and you are pursuing their life. Now, this is how the Bible describes what the world is. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life. And that is the world. That is how the world works. This is how it functions. So if you want to understand 
how sin has affected politics, economics, sexual ethics, art. Think about these three categories, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life, and you see it permeating every part of our culture because that's how the world works. Now, as Christians, because our identity is in Christ, we're identified as God's people, we are to refuse to bow down to the values and principles of the world. We are to see the world as our enemy. It should be unthinkable for a Christian to be friendly with the world. And by that, I mean to accept its ways, to accept its values, its patterns of life. That means we must reject the influence of our culture insofar as it promotes the world's values. You see, there are good parts of the culture that reflect God's design for human flourishing, and we are to embrace that. But there are parts of our culture that are infected by sin, that promote pride of life, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and we are to reject that categorically. And of course, this is where some of us think, well, we just need to leave the world. We just need to leave because the world is out there. And if we just separate ourselves, we will not be dealing with the world. That's the Amish solution, right? Many Christians think that. You separate yourself and you say, because, because the world equals secular culture, I'm not going to participate in secular culture. And so I am going to separate myself. But we are to be wise. There is as much of the world in a separate Amish community as it is outside of it. Because you don't escape that by simply separating yourself. You bring all of that sin with you. Now you've just contained it. We need to be wise. We need to look at ourselves and say, how are we to engage in our secular culture in a way that does not accept or promote the world's values, but in fact brings redemptive influence? So let me give you some examples. I think it is a good thing for a Christian to be in politics. Are you surprised that I think that? Pretty pessimistic about politics. But I think it's a good thing for a Christian to be involved in politics. But they must do politics as a Christian. I'm not talking about the label of Christian politics. I'm talking about a politician who is a Christian who is doing politics consistently with, with his or her identity as a Christian. That means to refuse to exploit others, to manipulate voters, to manipulate and bully others. That means to refuse to lie to gain an advantage, means to refuse to make decisions based on the increase of personal power and influence. When we think about Christian involvement in politics, we often just equate it with the position, with the platform. If we seem to agree with the platform, we say, well, that's a Christian politician. But it is not only, it's not only what you stand for, but it is how you stand for it. You see, that is very, very important. Yes, it's important. The positions are important. Policies are important, of course. But how are you getting those in action? How are you, how are you implementing them is very important. Now, it's good for a Christian to be in business, but they must do business as a Christian. 
That means refusing to exploit others for a greater profit margin. That means to refuse to define success purely in financial terms. It means to refuse to place their identity in their business, in their company. It's good for a Christian to be in the arts, but they must do it as a Christian. And I don't mean a Christian artist as a label. I mean being an artist distinctively in a Christian manner. For example, they must reject the world's refusal to connect beauty with morality. Those are connected in the Christian worldview. There's no such thing as amoral beauty. Every piece of beauty is promoting some sort of view of the world. They must reject the world's hunger for fame and acclaim that is prevalent in the arts. That's how a Christian should do the arts. It's good to own a house. Let's make it a little bit more closer to home. It's good to own a house. Private property is good, sanctioned by Scripture. Nothing wrong with that. But Christians must own property as Christians. Which means when you make a decision where to move and what kind of house to buy, you must process it in terms of the gospel and not in terms of status and appearances. I'm at this stage of life now, so I must have this kind of house and this kind of car. This is worldly thinking. It's unchristian. And we will not bow to that as believers. Now let me get a little prophetic here if you, if you think I haven't yet, okay? And when I say let me, prophets don't really ask permission, okay? So I'm being very nice with you by including you in this conversation. <laughs> I'm afraid that too often we just assume the world is out there in the secular culture and as long as we don't interact with sec secular people, we, we don't just rub shoulders with unbelievers, then we're fine. If we don't wear the kind of clothes they wear, if we don't play the kind of games they play and, and do dance moves they make, then we are okay. Many Christians think that. But in reality, it's just as likely to find the world in a religious community. Friends, we can be separate and worldly. When we prioritize comfort and tolerate indulgence in the church, are we not following the desires of the flesh? When was the last time you heard a sermon? And I, I am one of the culprits here, so I'm putting myself right in this whole mix, okay? When was the last time you heard a sermon on gluttony? How often do we talk about gluttony in the, in the American church? Not very often. Almost never, yeah. Why is that? The desires of the flesh. That's a sign of worldliness. Now, you may go to a Christian restaurant to indulge your flesh, but that doesn't make what you do unworldly and holy. When we keep up appearances to make our message appealing to others, when we seek to impress an effort to convert, when we value communication over content, are we not following in the desires of the eyes in the church? Is it strange to you how rare confession of sin 
is practiced in evangelical services. Do you know why that is? Because it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing to acknowledge that we are sinners. And we would like to impress people. We'd like them to see how much progress we have made so they can join us. When we value power, when we side with the strong against the weak, when we honor the wealthy and neglect the poor, are we not in line with pride of life? Brothers and sisters, we need to be actively opposing the influence of the world in the church. Not only in the culture, not only out there, but in the church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Christianity preaches the infinite worth of that is seemingly worthless and the infinite worthlessness of that which is seemingly valued. Is it true of us? Is it true that we preach the infinite worth of that which is seemingly worthless in the world and the infinite worthlessness of that which the world values? Can we say that we are opposite from the world? So what happens if you've been listening to me and you're agreeing with me and you're quietly saying amen and you're doing that and maybe you're on board, what happens when you live this out? And some of you have experienced it. What if we oppose the world and the values of the world and the patterns of the world? What happens when we do that, inside or outside the church? Well, look at what happens to Mordecai. Haman engages the vast machinery of the empire to destroy Mordecai and his people. Haman sounds like wrath in Hebrew. And so Haman's wrath, Haman's fury, is released on the Jews. He goes to the king and he manipulates him into signing an edict, condemning the Jews to annihilation. Now look at how how Haman is doing that. Look at the means he's using to get to his goal. Money, pride of life, possessions. He says, I will give you 10,000 talents of silver. Now the king at this point, he's just returned from this disastrous war with Greece. His treasuries are depleted. And here comes Haman. He says, we can plunder these people. They're not going to put up much of a fight. We'll just plunder them. We'll replenish your treasuries. The great argument in the world. And so the king says, okay. He appeals to the king's honor. He says, there's this certain people. By the way, whenever a sentence starts with, there's a certain person or there are certain people, that's trouble for that person or those people. And when he says there are certain people in the empire that refuse to obey your laws, that gets at the king's honor and respect, right? To his worldly instincts. And then this whole conversation ends with Haman and the king feasting while the city is thrown into confusion. The desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and pride of life are in operation as they make that decision. That's how the world works. And because Mordecai has not bound to its demands, he must be destroyed. What happens to Christians when we refuse to bow down to the world's demands? The world will attempt to destroy us. That's what the Bible says, 2 Timothy 3, 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. How much clearer can Paul be? If you desire to live a godly life, if you desire to live a life in accordance with your identity in Christ, you will be persecuted. Jesus says, in the world, you will have tribulation. 
The level of tribulation, the level of persecution may vary. I'm not saying everybody's going to get martyred, but the presence of tribulation and persecution must be there if we're living out the gospel in our lives. Anyone who desires to live out the gospel values in opposition to the world's values will be in conflict with the world and will experience its fury. There are tens of thousands of Christians today who are murdered for their faith every year. Estimates vary, but there are, it's at least tens of thousands of people every year who are dying because they refuse to compromise on their faith in Christ. I look forward to hearing from Pastor Dave and Pastor Emerson because they went and they were with those people. They were with the pastors who were scared to go to a conference because if it was discovered that they went to hear the Bible in Nepal or certain parts of India, they may very well be put in jail and put to death. There's a place that that ministry has for widows, widows of, how do widows come about? Their husbands were murdered for Christ. Now, I'm saying persecution varies from place to place. There are laws that are more just than other places. There are more protections. There are people who are more favorable to the church. But there has to be a level of persecution and a level of tension and a level of tribulation in your life if you are living out the gospel. Persecution is the, in the church's DNA. We're, we're made, we're part of who we are is we're persecuted people. In, in our church history class uh, in Sunday school, we, we, today, providentially, we talked about the early martyrs, the martyrs of the early church, and seeing that at that time, to be a Christian meant to oppose the Roman Empire. And you knew that that was happening when you were committed to Christ. That's why nobody took that decision lightly. So it's not about the level of persecution and tribulation as much as about its presence. So my question is, I'm going to make it personal, and then we're going to move and talk talk about our victory in Christ. Do you feel at odds with the world? Are you in tension with the world? Do you struggle under its pressure? How are you doing with temptation? Because that's all part of it. Is it hard for you to resist sin? If it's not hard for you to resist sin and resist the world, there are two options here. One is great and the other one is terrible. The great one is you've been sanctified completely and sin just doesn't matter to you anymore. You're so fully focused on Christ, it's 100%, and you just don't care about sin. It has no appeal to you. That's a good option. The other option is, is that you've been conformed to the world. And the reason you don't sense the tension, you don't sense the pressure, and there's no temptation is because you've given in and you're living according to the world. Whether you live a religious life or a secular life, that doesn't matter. Maybe the lack of internal struggle with sin, the lack of derision and ridicule from family members, co-workers, and classmates, the lack of pressure from the structures of this culture, the lack of frustration with what you observe around you, maybe it is because you have conformed to the world and are living in line with its values and not the values of the gospel of Jesus. I think that is true of too many Christians in our evangelical churches. And that's the end of my prophetic moment. 
We have to take it seriously. We have to look at our lives and at our church and say, are we in line with the world, the world's values? And finally, our victory. If you feel the world is pressing down on you this morning, if you feel tempted by the flesh, if you feel distracted from the gospel by the worries of this world, if you feel discouraged about your own sanctification, if you feel like the world is winning, if you don't know if you're going to survive this conflict, I have some very good news for you this morning. Hear what Jesus says in John 16, 33, our call to worship passage. Hear what Jesus says to you today in the midst of your struggle with the world. Jesus says, in the world, you will have tribulation. He's honest. But take heart. Be encouraged. I have overcome the world. Let's dwell on this passage a little bit. Jesus says, yes, it's hard in the world. You are right to feel the tension. It's not supposed to be easy. And you're right to be frustrated. And you're right to feel this distraction and pull from the world. And you're right to struggle with temptations. It's right. The flesh is strong. The devil is crafty. The world is all pervasive. That's all true. But, he says, take heart. Take heart. Be encouraged. Why? Because I have overcome the world. Yes, the world is real, but I have dealt with it, Jesus says. I have overcome the world. D.A. Carson comments, the verb rendered overcome indicates victory. Jesus has conquered the world in the same way that he has defeated the prince of this world. Jesus' point is that by his death, he has made the world's opposition pointless and beggarly. I love the word beggarly. It's just empty, no power left in it. The decisive battle has been waged and won. The world continues its wretched attacks, but those who are in Christ share the victory he has won. They cannot be harmed by the world's evil, and they know who triumphs in the end. From this they take heart and begin to share his peace. Now, I hope that that moves you already. I hope that that affects how you see the world and you're saying things are not hopeless. Just like for the Jews in our story, things are not hopeless. It's going to turn around for them. They're going to see the triumph of God. And so will we. And so are we now even seeing his victory? The edict of death in our, in our story is sent out on the eve of Passover. Again, why is the author giving us these dates? to tell us that even as the Israelites are celebrating their deliverance from Egypt, they're getting an edict from the king announcing their annihilation. But just like they were saved by the Lamb before, they will once again be saved by the Lamb of God. And this Lamb of God tells us, I have overcome the world. Now, how did Jesus do it? I don't want to leave you just on the rhetorical level. I don't want to leave you just, it sounds good, it's encouraging to me, maybe it's inspiring to me. I want to work through it and see how he did it. How did Jesus overcome the world? Well, in his life, in his incarnation, he confronted the world. This is not Jesus sending a drone. This is Jesus parachuting in. 
He's coming right into this world. John tells us he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Jesus is coming right in up close. He's addressing the world. He's confronting the world. The incarnation of the Son of God is the first step in taking on the world, which he will overcome. And then in his suffering and his death, Jesus has exposed the world for what it is. His suffering and death tells us what the world really is. Now, we're confused about it. Even as I'm working through these issues now from the Bible, we still are confused. What is the world? How do I relate to it? Maybe it's not as bad. Well, Jesus comes in and shows us how bad it really is. David Foster Wallace opened, uh, which is now his, his famous Kenyan College commencement speech, with this illustration. He said, Two young fish are swimming along and encounter an older fish who kind of nods at them and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? The young fish swim away, and then one of them looks at the other and says, What in the world is water? What is water when you're in it? You don't know what it is. You don't know what it feels like. That's your world. And so for many of us, when we look around us, we're saying, I don't know what the problem is. I don't even know what it is. I'm so immersed in it. That's just, that's just me. That's normal. That's natural to me. But when Jesus comes into this world, this innocent person, a person who is preoccupied with helping others, who heals, who feeds, who teaches, who explains to us what reality actually is. What happens to him? He's tortured, put on the cross, and murdered. Because that's what the world does. It's nice to have a positive view of culture. I'm in that camp. I'm in that category. But let's not forget how evil and ruthless the world is. What they did with Jesus they do with every Christian to whatever degree if that Christian is living out the gospel. Jesus was destroyed because he confronted the world. Haman got him. The fury of the empire was released on Jesus. Now what does it tell you about the world? It tells you that those who oppose its structures of power, which Jesus did, those who challenge its addiction to pleasure, which Jesus did, who dismiss its splendor and glory, which Jesus did, are crucified. That's what water is. That's what water feels like. We know what the world really is because of Jesus, his, his death, his suffering, his torture. Whatever image the world wants to put on itself, we know what it is because of Jesus. Jesus exposed it for all to see. And finally, in his resurrection, Jesus has proven that the world is not all-powerful. Jesus experienced the worst that the world could dish out, and yet he lives. He lives. This person who was helpless before the world, and the power of the world and the fury of the world was released on him, and yet they didn't destroy him. He lives. And everybody who believes in him lives also. Jesus, in his resurrection, has condemned the world and has declared its end. Scripture says this world is passing away. Why is it passing away? Because Jesus rose again and introduced a new world into the old one. You know, many of us think Christianity is about us going to heaven. 
That's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is about heaven coming to us. It's the new world breaking into the old world. What are we waiting for? I'm waiting for the new heaven and the new earth to come here. I'm waiting for Jesus to return and establish a perfect kingdom where the old world values no longer operate, but a new world values are in full operation. This is what Jesus did in the resurrection. He comes and he's the first fruits of this new world breaking into this old evil world. As real as the fury of this present world is, we know that it's not forever because a new world is coming and has in some way already come. Let me give you one illustration really briefly. I come from a culture, from a country where we have the 220 volts electrical system. And this is as much as I understand. I just know the numbers. So it's 220, and you guys have 110, correct? Okay. So if you bring a device that operates on my system, I can't use it here, right? There's a complicated system of, of how I can use it, how it needs to be fixed and adjusted, and, and, and adapters need to be used. Now imagine you live in this world, it's 110, and I'm the only person that knows it's all going to switch to 220 at some point. And I have a choice to make. Am I going to still persist in your world, or am I going to prepare for the world that's breaking in? Which means when I build my house, I'm building it under the new world order. I'm building it under the new idea, because I know that's coming, and everybody's going to have to submit to that. But for a while, it's going to be uncomfortable. I'm not going to be able to use all your devices. I'm going to have to be uncomfortable for a while, but at some point, it will come, and I will be ready, because I've already been functioning in that way. This is what we Christians are doing. Our choices are going to live based on the new world that's coming, or are we going to simply go along with what the old world tells us to do? And finally, how do we experience this victory over the world? 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So the way to apply all that I've been talking about, resisting the world, refusing to bow down to its values of the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and pride of life, is to believe in Jesus. And is to say that when Jesus came, I believe that when Jesus came, he has confronted the world with his life. And when he died, he has exposed the world for the evil that it is. And when he rose again, he has introduced a new world into my existence, and I can live now according to the new principles. And if you have this kind of faith, it makes you indestructible. 